This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're celebrating our 25th episode, the midway point of season one, with one of our personal favorites, maybe not one of the big movies uh, that would be on everybody else's list, but certainly one that uh, I know I've seen countless times, Rio Bravo. So as we begin this uh, special week and this special movie for the two of us, um, we'll start in the same place that we always do in a second. Uh, but right off the top, uh, thank you for listening so far. Uh, for those of you that have been faithful listeners, and by that I mean, you know, you've been with us for more than a few episodes. Uh, some of you pick and choose, I'm sure, um, based on movies that you know or that you uh, have a better understanding of. But uh, our hope is is to maybe encourage you to watch some of these movies with us or uh, widen your uh, horizon on some of it. Um, but uh, just a grateful thank you from both of us um, that uh, two, um, I guess, knuckleheads could uh, bring this to you for some entertainment each week and uh, hopefully be with you for quite a while yet. Uh, we have some uh, great movies planned for the back half of season one, and uh, we've got some uh, stuff that I hope uh, you'll appreciate. Uh, we have a few upcoming guests, so um, stay tuned for some of that. But, um, you know, uh, it's been fun bringing these to you every week. It is. I'm enjoying the opportunity to see the films and to talk about them every week, and I hope everyone's enjoying those that they've listened to. I'd encourage everybody to do or listen to other episodes because sometimes you find hidden treasures in things you never anticipated liking. Uh, I would also comment that um, if you have friends or family that are interested, please encourage them to listen as well. Uh, make it a little project. A lot of us are in quarantine for the most part, and uh, there's nothing better than to try to find some movies that uh, have some good entertainment value to uh, uh, spend some some quality time uh, with. So I know that most of you probably listen to these in like transitions in your car or while you're working or um, maybe going for a run or whatever else. But um, I noticed this week in going through my own Spotify playlist that there isn't a rate system for Spotify, and that happens to be one of our primary drivers. So um, our normal rate, subscribe, and review. But uh, I'm just going to add, please share the podcast. Um, if you know somebody that uh, has a favorite movie that comes up on a weekly thing for us, um, be willing to just share us out. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Um, any feedback you have for the show going forward? I mean, we've kind of evolved this thing. I, I think anybody that's listened to our first couple of episodes, and I know we have a couple of people that I know personally that uh, have done so, I think the show is extremely different from what we had done at the time. And um, I know we've been a little bit more consistent as we've kind of found our um, structure and the backbone of what we wanted to do. But um, we're, we're looking for any type of feedback, even if it's, well, I think it needs to be a little bit more substantive than um, you suck. But we'll, we'll even take the negative stuff and see if we can work on it or things um, you might like to see upcoming from the podcast. Uh, we would definitely appreciate it. 
Uh, you can get a hold of us at uh, either TJ3 or at TJ3Duncan on Twitter, um, TJ3.Duncan at gmail.com, or um, you know any of the uh, social media platforms. Uh, I think uh, my Instagram is working just fine, and uh, um, uh, LinkedIn, any of those. So that works for me. I, I know you're on Twitter at Dana W. Duncan. And uh, LinkedIn, you're you're one of the all stars if I remember right. So, um, but uh, yeah, please find us on any of those, and um, we'd we'd uh, love to uh, have anything that you'd like to share with us or uh, anything else. And I will mention uh, one of the things that um, I think has been interesting about doing this podcast so far. We kind of developed this, and it may not have been in our first couple of episodes, but the thing we lead off the podcast to and where I'm kind of transitioning now as we're going along is, you know, what is your relationship to this movie? And I think that might be one of our best questions because ultimately I think everybody is attracted or they have a favorite movie because it's, it's one of the most innocuous questions you can ask anybody. There's very rarely somebody who hasn't seen a movie at all, or at least doesn't have a favorite movie. And it's because everybody's come to it at a different time or another, but, um, the way at least American culture and frankly, even um, uh, an international culture um, has consumed movies over, you know, the, the last hundred years um, has fluctuated a little bit, but people still go back to the movies. And I think they have a personal connection. Everybody's got something that draws them to it or a certain memory, something that is deep seated in the brain and, um, adheres us to certain stories or connects us um, through that. And I think that's why um, we enjoy doing this as much as we do. So we'll, we'll have fun exploring that uh, topic uh, going forward and with some of our guests as we uh, hopefully move um, beyond the, the first 25. So with that, Rio Bravo. I, I know this one's got a lot of... Um, backstory for both of us i will go with mine and then i'll allow yours because yours is probably a lot longer so my history with this movie is is i can't remember exactly what age uh that i first saw this movie but i think it was at minimum before the age of five and i've seen it probably multiple times before the age of five uh i remember it being one of your favorites and I enjoyed all of the action as a kid. Um, I didn't really get caught up on all the in-between parts. And I was always um, waiting like basically two hours for that 10-minute scene at the end. Um, and it, every time I'm like, when do we get closer to that? When do we get closer to that? And, you know, there are certain action sequences within it. So, um, you know, the, the uh, dude shooting the guy out of the rafters <clears throat> or... Um, you know, the flower pot scene or the warehouse shootout are probably at least like the action heavy stuff. And it, it still um, gives me a smile just about every single time I've, I've seen it. Um, I haven't watched this in a little while, but I usually watch it once every couple of years at this point and come back to it. And there, there's a better appreciation I have for it as I've aged, but it is one of those where because I watched it as a younger kid and guaranteed I had no clue what was going on through half of the movie. Um, but I used to play this stupid movie out with uh, my Fisher price set 
and go through the whole thing and um it was kind of heroic and you have all of these like great grandiose characters and um these quite fun um kind of uh had accessible characters like dean martin despite being a star per se although i i don't know if he was quite the star power they would be a few years after this but um you know is kind of accessible and ricky nelson as being kind of the kid is accessible and carlos and stumpy and everybody else that you kind of go through the character list they're all they, they've just got a, a little bit where they're human and even john wayne to a certain extent um kind of gets put on his back heels often by angie dickinson throughout this whole movie and seems kind of like while he may be the big bad guy he's still got somebody that can put him in his place. So there, there's a lot to digest in here. Um, there are some family stories that I will choose not to share at this particular point, but what is your relationship to this movie? <clears throat> I cannot remember the first time I've seen, or I saw the movie. I know that it was with my dad as most of these movies. Are. Yeah. Okay. And I know this was one of my dad's favorites. Patron saint of the podcast, Ron yeah. Duncan. Who um, um, he he kept always commenting because this was, this was Howard Hawks remade the film, more or less. Yeah. Uh, with El Dorado, which was done about uh, 10, 11 years later. Um, and my dad always discusses El Dorado, and that would be on, he'd watch that, but he always talked about Rio Bravo being the better film. I know some critics think El Dorado is a better film because it's a little more gritty. Well, and I think there, even in some of my basic research, again, this is like, you know, very surface level, but I think he made remade it twice. El Dorado is only one of the two versions where yes. it's kind of the same backbone, but I don't remember what the other movie was. Yeah. Anyway, um, so... I I loved the film and uh, always had and it. Uh, I watched it, and then somewhere along the line, I started having opportunities when you were young uh, to start showing films that were appropriate for you to watch. Even though there is violence in the film, um, it's really not. It's more cartoonish violence than yeah. anything. Um, there really isn't anything that's in this film. Um, there's like no gore or grittiness. Um, it's kind of like upbeat and optimistic, but I don't think that it's any real different than like a Looney Tunes cartoon. See, and I grew up, Claude Aiken's boy, who was Joe Burdett, who's mm -hmm. the murderer, who's the vehicle by which the whole film revolves. Um, had morphed into doing um, a, uh, a, a a show where he was a police officer or a sheriff uh, in a show called BJ and the Bear. The Bear was a monkey in the 70s. And Claude Aikens ended up becoming Sheriff Lobo, which was a spinoff of that other show. And he became a big star on NBC in the 70s as being this lovable, um, good-natured cop Sheriff Lobo. Up until then, he had made an entire career of being an ass and being this the heavy. And, you know, so from him on through to the whole range of characters in it. Now, you talk about accessible. 
when you talk about Dean Martin and his star power, when Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis broke up, they were the highest grossing film stars in Hollywood. They were producing more money and more revenue for the studio than anybody else by far. So when they split up, this was a huge deal. And the question was whether Dean Martin could actually be successful outside of Jerry Lewis. He did another film, and then this is the second film after the breakup. Um, uh, 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 Ricky Nelson at the time was coming off of the TV series, Harriet or Ozzie and Harriet, playing himself in this. And there was not a bigger pop star in music at that point in time. So these are two huge stars to go with the movie star, John Wayne. Add in Walter Brennan and Ward Bond, who are two of the most uh, famous and most prolific character actors in Hollywood at the time. This was yeah. a star-studded cast. Well, I mean, right. this appealed to a broad range of people. Dean Martin was a heartthrob to middle-aged women. Ricky Nelson drew teens like crazy, and every guy would want to see John Wayne. Like, I'm trying to think, the the only thing I can um, imagine that is as many stars or people popping up that, uh, and it's not an apples to apples completely, but as far as like just pure star power, you th you throw in like five or six of them to headline a cast and then some really good character actors is uh, Ocean's Eleven. Um, you know, with Clooney and Pitt and Damon and Garcia and um, Julia Roberts all being on like the cover or the the um, poster, essentially. But I mean, you throw in guys that have had success after that um, with Don Cheadle and, um, you know, Carl Reiner had his own name, but like he'd been around and done some different things for uh, quite a while and had been an actor, director, etc. And um, you know, Bernie Mac obviously had his own show. Scott Kahn was eventually on like Hawaii Five-0 and did some other things. Casey Affleck has gone to um, star in other movies, but also has an Oscar to his own name. You know, and you look back and um, the only way I would say it's not completely apples to apples is I don't know what the status of Angie Dickinson was at the time. I don't think she was like a burgeoning star at the time. I think most of her stardom came after that. Well, but... she became, or she ended up shortly after this meeting and marrying her husband, who was her husband until the mid seventies. And they were probably one of the early Hollywood power couples. I mean, the, the ultimate power couple was Bacall and Bogart. But then we had other power. Well, obviously, and, you know, Bogart uh, died well yeah. before that. But, but Frank Sinatra and Eva Gardner, those type of things. But um, she married Burt Bacharach, who was a uh, composer, did a bunch of stuff, won a bunch of Emmys, Oscars, et cetera. Yes, and they were I'm, together for a long time. Um, eventually separated right. and divorced. But I'm going to bring you back around. You've gone in a very tangential thing to basically prove your historical knowledge yet again, but you have yet to really describe what your personal history with this movie is or why it's it's something that uh, is personal for you. I mean, we picked this because it is a personal movie. I have seen the movie 
probably 25 or 30 times. And every time I watch it, I develop a new appreciation. Some, some little subtlety in the movie that I missed previously. Something I understand better than I did. Um, and it's some of the, the peripheral things in the movie that I really appreciate. And in actuality, you're, when we get into the categories, I'm going to throw a couple of curveballs uh, at you regarding impact of some of the uh, individuals and the performances in this movie that I had not thought about until I actually watched it again this week and then really started to think about it in detail. I think that's been the case for me uh, as we've done each of these is that I've watched a couple of them for the first time, but you really, especially the ones that you've seen many times, you see through a different light when you are thinking about the categories and thinking about the grading and all of these other components together with it. And you kind of watch the movie differently by doing the podcast than you would have otherwise. I think we're doing it a little bit scientifically, but I think it equally gives you a um, artistic appreciation of every little piece that has to go into some of these, but also gives you uh, an ability to be objective and, really separate some of these things. And I think the more that we've gone along with the podcast, now this being uh, number 25, at least uh, in um, the episodes we've released, um, that we, we've done this enough where it's really given us that um, clairvoyance, if you will. So I, I, I'm curious to see how that comes about when it gets to some of our, like we haven't reviewed any of my favorite all-time movies and I'm not sure which ones are all yours, but I, I know that we're going to get to some very, very personal favorites yet um, on top of that for you. Yes. Well, I, one of the things I've noticed is, is that um, I watch movies a lot like I make decisions. I gather a lot of information, and sometimes it's, things need to just germinate before I really have a good feel for what I should do. Watching films is the same way. As I watch it, I have a different reaction than I do a few days later. Um, just on happenstance, we both happened to watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and you asked me what I thought of the movie when it was over. It was such a raw performance. I'm sitting there going, uh, I'm not sure what I think. It's taken me about two or three days to realize how good it really was and what the performances were mm -hmm. and how this is really a... You know, it shows uh, a side of humanity and of life that exists that we just don't often allow to be seen. Absolutely agreed. Like, uh, I, I've seen a couple of these movies that were based on plays that I would be, as a um, former actor, just uh, chomping at the bit to try and do or, like, be a part of because... There's just so much great dialogue in that and the extents and the extremes to all of that. But, um, I, yeah, it, it's certainly one of those. But we should really try and... Okay. And, and that just was what I was going to say is, is that going back through, um, I didn't realize, again, until I watched the film and then thought about it for a few days afterwards of how really good of an actor... Um, Dean Martin was. Yeah. I, I, I think we're going to get into some of that and I, I, I'll 
I'll save it ahead of that, but that's that's a good foreshadowing or a good harbinger of um, you know some of the categories as we're going to go through this because I had to think there there are so many good um, star like performances. <laughs> I don't know if this is like great acting range for some of them, but as far as just being a movie star, you have that all over the place in this movie. Yeah, I I agree, but I, I in retrospect, I always thought Dean Martin basically always was Dean Martin. You know, I mean, I grew up watching Dean Martin's variety show on TV, and then it was Dean Martin's celebrity roasts, and watching Dean Martin doing appearances, and you know, and okay. then go back through and watching some of his films and watch him act, actually act, and realize that I underestimated what he was doing. We're going to have to cut into Nostalgia Hour. We're going on 20 minutes already with the audience, and we have yet to do the plot summary for the movie we're supposed to be discussing. All right. All right. Anyway, so uh, our normal, uh, just giving you kind of the background of the movie. When gunslinger Joe Burdett, by the aforementioned Claude Akins, uh, or played by Claude Akins, kills a man in a saloon, Sheriff John T. Chance, John Wayne, arrests him with the aid of the town drunk, Dude, played by Dean Martin. Before long, Burdett's brother, Nathan, played by John Russell, comes around, indicating that he's prepared to bust his brother out of jail if necessary. Chance decides to make a stand until reinforcements arrive, enlisting Dude, an old cripple named Stumpy, played by Walter Brennan, and babyface cowboy Colorado Ryan, played by Ricky Nelson, to help. So, uh, other pieces. So th this isn't a movie that was widely recognized at the time. It hasn't really been so since. You got you get a very mixed response. It does appear in most like top twenty five lists of westerns. I just did a cursory one just to kind of look, but it's not necessarily one that is in a lot of people's top ten. So. Um, it, it'll be in one person's, but it won't be in another's, and it's, it kind of goes back and forth. But the one recognition piece I could find is it was uh, inducted in a national film registry in 2014 um, as a significantly important cultural film. This film is, um, for whatever reason, is liked more by uh, other directors and um insiders in the film industry than I think a lot of the general public. For example, um, John Carpenter, who did Precinct 13, um, there's elements of that film um, which are based on this. And in fact, he did his own editing of the film and he credited himself in the title or in the titles at the end as John T. Chance as the editor, uh, as a uh, in honor of this film. So I think it has more legs among industry insiders than it does in the general public. I think it is one that does come around, but then again, I think Westerns as a whole is um, one celebrated by a lot of directors. And I did see a comment today that I'm going to kind of um, rip off. I can't remember where I saw it. So unfortunately that's part of it. And this is my only job of accreditation, but that, and it, it kind of um, stuck with me a little bit as to thinking about the Western. Um, it is the one area where you have no rules or law, but it makes sense. And it's within a um, environment where 
Um, you can kind of set the rules as you like them. And it gives us the ability to view um, the human spirit in a much different light without the boundaries of institutions or the rules we would otherwise place on them. So it, it often shows us both the um, best of humanity and the worst um, due to the nature of what goes on. So, uh, all right, moving right along, what is this movie about? This movie is a, about a individual who stands up to um, the financial or the big moneyed interests um, with the help of a hodgepodge of eclectic individuals around him and uh, is able to overcome the big moneyed interests. It's what America would like itself to be. So my description of the film is a little bit more succinct, um, but basically along the same lines as yours. A sheriff with little institutional support stands against the interests of the big rancher in town, but only with the help of his friends. Okay. I, I, it basically covers uh, almost verbatim your entire thing, but um, it's just, you know, a little bit clearer. Let's say that. So, uh, best performance. I have a surprise on this one. So I'm going to let you go first. Uh, best performance is Dean Martin. Okay. Had the greatest range. I think so, possibly two. Um, but ex explain your pick a little bit more than that. Well, he had to go through a man challenged by his own past and then he kind of has his moment where he you know decides to change then he continues on that path but it's he's kind of in that purgatory in between the two worlds of being back where he was and being the uh, town drunk and then he has his epiphany figures it out and then from there becomes um you know, a key portion of the the team ultimately sets up the conclusion. Um, it just, it, it required a certain level of acting where he had to be both vulnerable and um, exhibit some levels of, of there, were, there were moments in time where he had to kind of be uh, pissed off, I guess, is the term. At the same time that he realizes he has limitations, um, and so it's just—I just found it to be a uh, a uh, performance that had a lot of subtleties about it that really exemplified an individual going uh, through uh, basically reclaiming his life from alcoholism. So this is one where. I can't really disagree with you on that. I put him as my best minor performance, but honestly, I could probably have the two swapped. And I could generally uh, agree with you with best performance, but I wanted to go a little outside of the box. Um, but just on him for uh, solidification to your point, I'm just going to tack on, there are not a lot of roles where... Um, you're engaging or sympathetic with somebody going through alcoholism. 
Um, really the only film otherwise that I can think of just off the top of my head as far, well, I guess there are two. There's Dennis Hopper's character in Hoosiers, uh, but that one's kind of a periphery character more than like a central plot line. And The Lost Weekend, which all has to do with alcoholism itself. Yes. But a lot of times we're very unsympathetic towards um, alcoholics. And I think in a perspective, it's going to probably affect where my grading comes out on this one as far as um, or subject matter that's ahead of its time a little bit is I think they treated the alcoholism conversation um, with a lot of nuance and uh, ability that I would expect out of a more modern film for this being from 1959. So ultimately, but that also um, made him provide the same level of range where he's got to be upbeat in some senses. He's got to do the charismatic star quality in others. Um, in other senses, he's got to be the shaky guy going through withdrawals or hung over, and he just had a lot more than anybody else to probably play. So, with that, my surprise best performance is Angie Dickinson. Okay. And it's simply this. Um, you know, for all of the other characters, other than maybe Dean Martin, they're just in the movie being stars and kind of action heroes and or like the comedic effect, like uh, Walter Brennan's character is just constantly brought in for the comedic nature or um, the guy that plays Carlos, who his last name is uh, Gonzalez hyphenated Gonzalez, (laughs) which (laughs) to me is like, why bother at that point? But anyway, um, you know, he, he's brought in a lot for comedic effect. And there are several parts of her performance that are there. But she has so much uh, flighty range throughout the performance that she goes from, like, one extreme to the next. And she's constantly keeping you off balance. And you're never quite sure where her character's at. And it kind of gives me the, um, the weird impression of... <sighs> Like, it's hard to put. It's an intangible quality, and I I hate to say this um, in a general sense. And so forgive me, I'm sure I will garner criticism for this, but of women in general, that they're just um, indecisive and... Oh my, you're opening your mouth and foot. I know, it's not... I've I've probably already put um, some backlash into this, and will be called like a sexist for it. But this is like the cliched version of this that's like flighty and constantly um, emotional and the rest of it, but yet you still get the undercurrent of femininity and um, like that she's always in control of the situation. Feel free to, uh, to put this or put a like on or a link to Twitter, a hashtag misogynist. Thanks, Ted. I was trying to be careful, but there's no real great way of saying it. Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret, which is Howard Hawks, when he was working on the film and his writers, he told them specifically what he wanted from that character 
was the character Lauren Bacall played in To Have and Have Not. And if you follow the lines from... Yeah, because everybody remembers that one. Well, uh, I certainly do. If okay, you, but if you take a, if you take some of the lines from "To Have or Have Not" that Lauren Bacall gave, they almost rewrote some of the lines um, for Angie Dickinson in this film. You're giving callbacks to like four different TV shows that most people have never heard of, and yes, of course you're going to have a memory of a Lauren Bacall Humphrey Bogart movie from the mid '40s, but not Later, everybody. Yes, and it also has the thing of being. Um, uh, a uh, I don't know, maybe it was Key Largo. One of the two was oh, the, Lord. the book was written by by Hemingway, and Faulkner wrote the screenplay. Well, if I have to put hashtag misogynist, we've got to put half or hashtag tangent for you. Sure, that's that's what my job or role is in this. Yes, providing the information no one asked for. <laughs> well, okay. Anyway, all right. So I already told you what my best minor performance was. What do you have? My best minor performance? Dimitri Tumpkin. Who? The guy who composed the score, including the song, uh, the cutthroat song that plays in the in the actual thing where they said it was played to the outside of the Alamo. It was written as original po- or music by Dimitri P- or Tompkin. Dimitri Tompkin had at one point in time was averaging in the 1940s and or late 40s, early or through the 50s into the early 60s, was doing one score for a film per month. He won an Oscar for the score for High Noon. He'd won uh, Oscars also for several other films. The fact that this that this music was or is so much a part of this film, and uh, the song, the cutthroat song, which plays the throughout, yes, um, actually John Wayne got permission and put it into the film he produced uh, in 1960, The Alamo. Well, I mean, they mentioned it as being like the song that was uh, played for that particular thing. Um, but he wrote it. It was written in okay. for the for the actual movie itself. This is where uh, I threw something in. You're 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 pulling one well out of left field. Like there there are certain elements of music to this, but other than the uh, opening number where they kind of have the opening credits, um, the other pieces that are significant to the film. Uh, all have to do with um, either Dean Martin or Ricky Nelson or somebody else being a part of it. Like the two songs that they do together is kind of like an aside where um, that was kind of the movie star quality, them singing uh, during the middle of this or the ending piece, which is a song that um, Dean Martin did. But the song, I, that song was also written by Tomkin. I, I just, I, I, I'm kind of stunned that you pulled that one. I told you that I was going to go with a different direction on this. Um, if I had to rate a secondary performance as a, uh, as a minor performance, um, I would probably go with Ricky Nelson simply because for the role he had, he seemed like he did a very good job 
uh, really, other than acting on TV as himself, he had not done a whole lot of acting. And I thought he did a pretty decent job of performing in this film. Okay. I had to even look up um, like the spelling of his name so that I could put it in the show notes. <laughs> I mean, he's not even listed in the basic Google search that he did this movie. Well, uh, and I became familiar with him because he had done so, he had done so many different films. Um, actually, there is an old episode of the Jack Benny TV show oh, where he guest stars. Do you do nothing but pull nostalgia out here? Yes. Oh. That's my role. Okay. All right. Most charismatic award. Um, for me, it's the same one that I had when I was a kid to now, and every time, and it's it's especially played out in um the warehouse shootout because it comes out of nowhere. You're not expecting it, but you're loving every second of it when he pops up. And it's Walter Brennan. <laughs> because, I'm sorry, I watched this movie half the time. I mean, there are so many great characters I could have put in this. Like, Ricky Nelson is charming, and Dean Wayne, or Dean Martin, you really, like, get into his character. John Wayne is that, like, epitome of strength and, um, like, Western manness. Um, and even uh, Carlos is, like, a, a great strength character but there is nothing like walter brennan's cackling throughout the middle of the or like most of the duration of the movie that just breaks things up and you kind of like not only feel bad for him but simultaneously are just charmed by him every time he's on well and to this day i have a hard time not calling it dynamite <laughs> so who did you have uh most charismatic i had is dean martin because he okay. just has a stage and presence that's just, it's amazing to realize how much stage presence is. It's no wonder that Martin and Lewis were so popular. Right. And I do want to give a slight honorable mention because, um, you know, he, he being uh, somebody that tragically died, like, very young, um, Ricky Nelson is, um, like, got one of those great smiles like the that boyish charm, and so I'll I'll just throw him into this for an honorable mention. But um, it, it was o almost always going to be Walter Brennan for me. Yeah, I can understand. And Ricky Nelson, and unfortunately, his death was rather tragic and and bizarre as it is. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, he died in a plane crash. He was actually freebasing cocaine and set the plane on fire, and it ended up crashing. That was even details that I didn't know. I knew he died in a plane crash, but that okay. was what the FAA determined. Well, um, yeah, that's um, that, that's one way to overdose, I guess. Yeah. All right. So moving on to best scene. Um, there are more, again, I think that some of the scenes are more sequences. There are some very long scenes um, in this, uh, but uh, I'll just go through a few. And I left out a few, um, as it were, anyway. But 
the opening bar fight, I think that's a call for a lot of directors because, and it took me a while as a kid to even figure out what the hell was going on in that situation. I remember asking you when I was very young, um, what the hell the significance of him throwing a coin in that like um, brass bowl was. And, you know, it's supposed to be the spittoon and it's supposed to be um, a sign of, um, uh, I guess, condescension um, or like an ultimate insult toward toward uh, dude that um, you're allowing him the opportunity to buy a drink, but he has to fish it out of the spittoon. And it's how desperate he may or may not be in order to get um, a drink. And... The other parts of the, I mean, the, the first line that's said is probably about like eight or nine minutes into the film. And it's in the second bar, well after everything else is going on, when they're arresting Joe. But that that whole sequence kind of, um, other than the sound actions and kind of immersing you in this, and it doesn't really explain it, but that's like the central action that sets off the rest of the film is one that is at least talked about among other directors. Yes, it was done all without any lines. The first eight minutes of the film. Roughly. That's what it is. It's a little over eight minutes of the film is done without lines. The only thing you hear are the sounds uh, associated with it, which is the hits, the gunshots, and the underlying score by Dmitry Potemkin. Okay, it sounds like you're saying Patinkin, and it's Tinkin. It's T I O M. Yes, it's Tiamkin. It's pronounced the the I is like you almost like barely say it. That was what I was told because that's the Ukrainian way of saying it. He was a Ukrainian nationalist. Who escaped the or uh, communist Russia or communist uh, Russia in 1917? All right, next one that I had up, sheriff, you forgot your pants, which will make a return at some other point. Yes, um, if you haven't seen that particular scene, um, you're you're gonna have to go watch it. I can't really describe it too much else without giving a, a whole lot of the. Um, scene away. So, uh, the man with the checkered vest. Uh, basically, they break up the poker game, and uh, he falsely accuses Angie Dickinson. Then Ricky Nelson um, brings him the real culprit. Um, dude goes in the front. Um, something we've already kind of mentioned um, before this, and it's it's kind of the one where you um, first get the glimpse that dude can be a really um, good. I guess, gunslinger if he needs to be, or that he's kind of on his own path to recovery, but it kind of gives you that that first sense where he's the big shot, uh, again, for ones. Um, Feathers throws a flower pot. Um, we've kind of roughly mentioned that scene, and it kind of comes and it wraps around again toward the end. Um, the Degueo scene, and I, I think that one is undersold, um, because that has multiple pieces. So it's when Nathan visits Joe in jail and they start playing the song, but it's also um, after everything else that's going on. I, I, I guess if I'm going to highlight the particular song in the moment that I, I'm trying to give, it's not when the Degueo is first played. It's um, the second time around 
when um, dude kind of like has that snap moment where he's at his um, wits end and all of a sudden this like snaps him out of whatever he had been in the depths of his despair. Um, and he's able to like calmly collect himself. And for the the amount, if you're if you're really nominating Dean Martin for his best performance, it's really for that particular scene. It is. It's it's extremely well done. Just for some background, you mentioned the whole alcohol thing. Um, I I come at this as the son of an alcoholic, and I don't know. If well, and the grandson of an alcoholic. Correct. Anyway, I just remember my dad telling me his defining moment which is my mother's ultimatum about uh, one month before I turned five years old. And she told him that she was leaving him and he would never see me again if he didn't clean up his act. And so he had to make the decision to go into alcohol rehab and made the decision because he realized that he didn't want to have a life where he didn't have his son. So, um, so my fifth birthday, um, he was in rehab. So, and I remember that to the day, to this day, it's probably one of the reasons why I love trains because he gave me my birthday present before he left, which was a train set. Oh, I guess I, that was the one part of that story that I hadn't heard before, which is interesting. Okay. Um, the last two that I have down here, the warehouse shootout, I think that's kind of self-explanatory and we've kind of generally referred to it, but I think it's got some of the best action moments, but also some of the best um, comedic moments in, mm -hmm. in um, connection with it. And then the final scene feathers and tights and just kind of that um, exclamation mark on the, the Dickinson performance as it relates to John Wayne and all of the rest that goes into that, but that one will be coming back around. So did, Angie, are there Angie Dickinson had some really nice legs. If I remember yes. right, I think Lloyd's of London actually insured her legs at one point in time. So are there any that you would like to put in here that I missed? Um, the scene where dude is um, jumped and they're going to go into the, to the uh, uh, jail. Um, when they get the drop on John Wayne, right? Um, you know, ultimately that scene was uh, Walter Brennan in uh, in uh, Colorado setting it up and killing the the hired guns that were going to spring Joe, right? Okay. Um, so what would you have out of those that have been mentioned so far as your best scene then? Uh, because of my uh, belief of John or of Dean Martin's performance, it is ultimately his defining moment where he hears the, the cutthroat song and decides, you know, I don't even want to drink at this point in time. I've had a hard time going back and forth between a lot of these and i think a lot of them could be the best but it, as far as quality and the other things i have it down to two and i will i will agree with you on your selection just because the other one is my 
I've already kind of tipped it anyway as my favorite scene back from, you know, when I was a kid anyway. So that was never going to be difficult. Um, but uh, so my my favorite scene is the warehouse, sh uh, warehouse shootout. I think it just has a good capper on the whole thing. It's the best action sequence of the entire movie. It's got so many moving parts to that and uh, so many comedic pieces that go on to the whole thing because you get this tense motion or um, uh, build up of the whole thing. They're walking uh, to the warehouse and they're going through the barn and then you get this final like musical sequence uh, where Joe and Dean Martin are walking at each other and then finally like they lurch at each other and like go into a fist fight and then there's this whole gun fight and all of the other pieces that are going on around that and then um, Carlos shows up and um, Stumpy shows up and all of these other things that go on only to end in big explosions and all of the rest of that for whatever it's worth I always loved the ending it was the only uh, for when i was really small it was the best part of watching the movie and i waited two hours because this is a two hour and 20 minute movie to get to that sequence and you know it was always everything building up to that moment in the thing so for me it was a no-brainer that it would be my favorite scene okay and watching the movie again this time, probably at least the 30th time I've seen it, it dawned on me, they're out in the middle of, like, the desert in southwest Texas. Why did they have to surrender? The whole back of the warehouse was desert. Just take off running or get on your damn horse and ride away. So I have that in our, like, uh, remaining questions section, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely with you as far as that being one of those things where it's like, why? But <laughs> I, I guess that's not as cinematic as like the final note on this thing where he's triumphed. Um, it's not as good when everybody just kind of runs away and you, you don't get it as it is. Like everybody's walking out with their hands in the air and they give up. So, um, the most indelible moment. Now, this one was more difficult. I don't know if there's any one defining moment of the movie, but I went with an oddball choice, and it was not one. It could have been up for best scene, but I think it's it's the one where, if I think about the movie, it's the thing I kind of have uh, front of mind almost immediately when I, when I do. And uh, Sarah was mentioning this the other night while we were... Um, uh, watching the movie because you and I can do the words to both songs and it's the Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson um, when they do the two songs in the jail and it, it's basically just thrown in to be music stars during that because you have two pretty good music stars in the middle of this western and you're just allowing them the free reign to do two songs um, and get part of their star quality but uh, you and I have watched this movie so many times that we are, we've memorized the two damn songs and are able to just perform them at will. Yes. There are several films that I can do the lines in advance of the actual line. Well, done. right. I think there are quite a few, if it's just the lines, but as far as musically in the songs. Correct. Do you have a different thought as far as most indelible moment, though? To me, one of the key moments is the point where 
Ward Bond and John Wayne are talking about the situation. Bond just comes into town and he says, says to Wayne, so this is what you, or this is all you got, a, you know, a cripple and a, well, I'll get to it. I have it under best lines. Yeah. You've, you've done a really good job of getting way ahead of me on each point of this podcast so far. Well, anyway, that's my indelible moment, which is, is instead of taking a position of, you know, like, this is, this is all I've got. It's, well, this is what I've got. This is, you can, you can either wallow in the fact of what your situation is, or you can take a position of, well, this is better than nothing. Well, we're definitely into the thick of this podcast. This is going to be probably um, longer than most of our normal uh, ones so far. But let's take a quick break uh, for one of our sponsors, and uh, we'll get back at it for the uh, back half of our 25th um, celebratory episode. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. And welcome back. Uh, thank you for staying with us. I know this one is going a little bit longer than um, maybe we had initially planned, but I, I had an inkling that this was going to be one of our longer ones given our um, enthusiasm for this movie. So that takes us as we normally do to pick up after the break to best lines. So I have a couple of them. I don't think that the dialogue is a huge part of this movie other than um, a few of the situations, um, particularly with Angie Dickinson and um, that, that um, relationship within the movie. But so I'll do the one that you were kind of referencing right before we got off as far as your most indelible moment. Uh, Pat Wheeler, a bum-legged old man and a drunk. That's all you got? That's what I got. Uh, John T. Chance, you want that gun? Pick it up. I wish you would. It that I mean, if there's an epitome line of John Wayne, it sounds like that. Yes. I don't know if there are too many other ones where it's like, yeah, Buster, I'm going to sound like Dirty Harry. Go ahead, make my day. I mean, that's his essential version of that. Uh, another line that we've already kind of prefaced, but, hey, Sheriff, you forgot your pants. Yes. I think that's probably going to be my nominee for uh, funniest line. Um, there, there are a few comedic effects here. Uh, I skipped over the one where Carlos seems to claim that he knows women. Um, but, and I, I, I intentionally left that one out because uh, I'm already getting my hashtag misogynist on this podcast. But um, let's know, we don't need to put the final nail in my coffin. All right. Um, feathers. I thought you were never going to say it. 
John T. Chance. Say what? That you love me. I said I'd arrest you. It means the same thing. You know that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and one that's kind of out of order because it's from much earlier in the movie. But how does uh, how does a man get to be a sheriff? Gets lazy. Gets tired of selling his gun all over. Decides to sell it in one place. I'd say you made a poor sale. A lot of people around here will agree with you. But it's still a sale and it's too late to back out. Okay. I, I think, and we, we've gravitated towards um, certain summation lines, but that's that's about as close as you're going to get other than the one you mentioned. Okay. So out of those, um, which one would you highlight as the best line? The, uh, this, the lines between Ward Bond and John Wayne about, that's what I've got. <sighs> I don't really think I'm going to factor all of them out. I'm going to put the rest in uh, honorable mention other than the one we mentioned for funniest line. Um, but I'm going to go, since you went with that one, with the other summation line that we finished up with. Um, but I, I don't think any of them is particularly a bad choice. I think all of them are well delivered for the, uh, the little dialogue that there was. It's usually pretty good and pretty to the point. Um, I, I don't think they really miss a whole lot of uh, scenes where they have to <laughs> deliver something or at least communicate it. So, all right. Um, do you want to give a, a nominee for funniest line or something else? Actually, you have not given what I think is the funniest line. Okay. Feathers kisses uh, John T. Chance. And he doesn't react and then kisses him again and then he kisses her back and she says it's much better when you participate. I think that's the line. I'm probably paraphrasing it. You but... are a little bit, but um let me guess. Is this because it had another um callback to to have or have not? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Uh so you wanna jump into the grading then? That's fine. All right. I think we're going to differ a bit. Um, but I'll I'll give mine at least for Legacy, then I'll let you go. So Legacy, I think this one is a mixed bag. Um, I, I won't get into stuff at the time. We're only going to do this as the movie has aged. I think it has given a little bit more appreciation in maybe the last 20 years than it might have been when I was a kid. Um, and the further we've gotten away with it, certain voices have given this one higher billing. But I still think it's one of those that's up and down as to whether... I think it, it's included in most people's broader list of best westerns, or ones that you need to see if you like the genre or that, that type of movie. But I don't know if this is in... A lot of people's top fives when it comes to this not in the same way that like the searchers or um the wild bunch the man who shot at Lib well not even the man who shot liberty valley that one's that one's also an up and down movie which i think personally is a better movie just just for me uh or mm -hmm. my perspective but um or butch cassidy and the sundance kid which are much more highlighted um westerns per se Unforgiven occasionally gets in there too, 
um, the Clint Eastwood Best Picture winner from 1992. So um, I'm going to give this one a six because of that up and down nature, but I'm going to defer toward the higher side. Um, but what did you have? Eight. Okay, so that'll average it out to a seven, but why did you go as high as you did? Well, because really this started the formulaic system of a Western. Um, you had Westerns that had themes, you had Westerns that had principles, you had Westerns that had concepts. This kind of like was the character Western. And without this, you know, one of my favorite films of all time, and I actually got to meet one of the stars of the film and commented about it, uh, is a movie that came out in the 80s called Silverado, um, Brian Dennehy. And um, uh, Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, um, uh, you know. Yeah, that... Yeah, okay. anyway, um, the point being is, is that even to the extent that Unforgiven, it's a collection of individuals who have huge personal flaws or problems that come together to achieve a goal. I think that concept has came through what are the more modern Westerns and has kind of morphed into a concept that's in more than just Westerns in um, many films. So when was the Mag Magnificent Seven? I think that's mid-60s, right? Late 60s. So 67, 68, somewhere in there. But the Magnificent Seven is a direct ripoff of a uh, Kira Kurosawa movie um, from the, the Seven Samurai, yes. No, the hidden. Or no, okay, you're right. The uh, Seven Samurai is correct for Magnificent Seven. The Hidden Fortress has a, a different correlation on a, another um, very popular movie. But anyway, the point being that uh, as far as team up and directorial and the influences of that, I think um, that one has a little bit. Uh, to say about at least the formulaic nature. I don't know if this one had that effect. I don't think it had the impact at the moment, but I, I know we're getting into the next category. I'm just strictly looking at it for legacy. And this one, I think this one is kind of lost by comparison to some of the other big ones. Like it's not uh, mentioned with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, the Searchers has gotten like much more um a claim in the last 20 years than it had when it originally came out um but um it's not in the same voice as it just uh, a bunch of these other bigger films the magnificent seven is another western that like it, people put up at near the top and i just i have not right. heard this one be except that this is a situation that's very common is, is this is a film that people forget about and then they watch it again, and then they go, oh, yeah, this is really good. I had forgotten how good this film is, and all of a sudden it makes it on their list. Because it, it for whatever reason, it just does not have the impact that it did, that it becomes so memorable that it has all the other connotations, the grit, et cetera, that the other films do. This is one that I think if everybody who has a list of Westerns that they like watched again, they would all of a sudden put this as number two or number three. 
Now, if you have everybody putting this as number two or number three, it suddenly becomes one of the more popular or best films because it's on everybody's list. But it matters that they have to see it again. This is one where I, I have a hard time with this, and I've gone back and forth, and I've kind of gone on the other side of that. Um, this is a well-made, um, fun, entertaining favorite movie, but I'm not sure it belongs among the very best, like, true westerns. I think it, it is a good movie. I don't know if it's a great movie. And I, I already mentioned that I, I think there are other movies that are, are better, but I think I put this in the same category as kind of that Magnificent Seven type where it's it's a fun, engaging movie, but I don't know. I guess we'll see when we, we've finished out all of these and maybe we do a comparison episode for like different genres when we do like a bunch of musicals and we do some of the other Westerns. I mean, this one is a direct response to uh, High Noon. So that's another one that we could really take a look at and um, compare and contrast as far as the, the different approaches and what um, the stylistic differences, but also the story choices would be. So impact significance. Um, again, I, I think this one, uh, they said it was a relatively successful film. So it, ultimately, the the number I had or that I found um, was 5.5 million at the time. So I did the inflation calculation adjustment. That is roughly 48.7 million in current dollars, um, which would be an okay movie for like an indie thing that was barely making back its budget. Um. Well, this, I don't know what the, the relative relative success of a movie is or is not, but this isn't like a, one of the big films of all time type of things. Okay. I think maybe it's gotten more play in later years, which is why I gave it a little bit better note um, as far as legacy. But in the moment, I don't think this was like a big film. It was kind of a commercial success, but I don't know if it was anything more than that. I think this has gotten more play as it's gone along. Well, first of all, you have to understand, when it came out was 1959. Do you understand that 1960 on network TV, between ABC, CBS, and NBC, there were 19 television shows that were westerns? Okay. Westerns were it. So it was easy for Western to get lost in the shuffle because that's 90% of what was there. But then you're, you're making the exact claim against it being impactful or significant at the time. It was another run-of-the-mill thing. Well, yes and no, because it was unique to how it was done, but... It was a very common theme at that point in time. I, I ultimately, I, I may even be high on five with what you've been arguing, kind of. But what did you have? Seven point five. I, I think we're 
we're going to be very far apart on some of these, but um, all right. So what is that? Uh, I think that's 6.25 um, as the graded average. Um, so then what did you have for novelty? Uh, I actually had this as low because it wasn't that novel. It was, it was right. very consistent with what was available at that moment in time. So I had a six. <sighs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna generally agree to a six. Then um, I've gone back and forth. Um, again, this has been a difficult one. I do appreciate that. Um, well, maybe I'll put this in more classicness. But as far as like topics or things that they were doing, story choices, devices they were doing, some of it was like we said um, in direct response to High Noon as a film. Um, you know, famously, John Wayne um, is uh, was one of the more anti um, Red Scare or Blacklist people. Not that he was against the Blacklist, he was in support of it, but specifically trying to run the writer of High Noon out of Hollywood. He, he was, uh, or he celebrated or was prideful in himself for doing that. Um, and this movie is kind of in that direct response to uh, a film that's kind of seen in the way as the blacklist film per se. Um, but <laughs> ultimately, um, I, you know, despite using or giving at least a nuanced performance, a, which I'll give it a little bit of credit for, for the alcoholism and the rest of it, it was a general Western with a bunch of stars and I, I don't think other than action sequences that they had to do a whole lot of things. So I put it, I'll just agree to the six and we'll kind of move on from there. All right. Uh, classicness. Now this one, I graded a little bit higher, but I I'm curious to see where you went. Um, I actually went 8.5 on this for classicness because I think this film in retrospect is one that kind of there's nothing in this that ages out poorly there's nothing in this that is distasteful now that you know um it's had an impact it, it's something that if this were released as it is today would still do well um so for other westerns of the time there was a built-in uh semi racism to him like the the one thing that you can mostly say about almost every western is um they are very rarely going to have anybody of color but this movie does prominently feature a sub character who speaks in spanish while part of the comedic relief and maybe um you could say a caricature um, still gets a big play and like is an endearing character that I enjoy. And um, I don't think they really pull back on their um, realness as far as ethnically uh, from that. So I'll get, I'll grant that credit again. They deal with the alcohol and alcoholism in a very nuanced position that you'd expect from a more modern film. There aren't any gross examples of racism or, um, like out and out misogyny and even and I know you've complained about this and we probably should bring it up at one point that um the the 
relationship between John Wayne, who's like 30 years older than Angie Dickinson in this movie. Um, <laughs> it seems odd, but given kind of modern relationships and, and again, this is not meant to be put out as something that's um, offensive, but rather that it's me trying to recognize that this is a staple of our current culture time. There are a lot of women looking for older men due to quote unquote daddy issues in our current modern culture. So the, even that, like I can't say is all that odd in uh, a regressive or conservative sense. Yes. In a more modern sense, it's much more nuanced than the basic, well, he's way too old for her. Um, which I can't even say, even though I personally believe that might be too much of an age gap. And frankly, and it's one of my remaining questions, why when you have both Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson there that you go after John Wayne? But we will get to that. There, there's a sociological impact, and it, it has to do with animal husbandry, which is... The alpha. Well, it's the alpha. It's also the protector the one that's the most inclined to be um, the head of the pack, you know, I mean, it, there's a whole aspect of this. I suppose. I, I think there are much different things to attractiveness overall. So I, I won't um, get into all of those things. I'm not going to pretend like I know what is attractive or unattractive to women. I've already ventured way too far into categories that I should never be a part of. Yes. So, but I gave it an eight and a half as well. It, it, so we hit it exactly right on, on the same head. Um, but we'll move this into rewatchability then because we're, we're running pretty, pretty far already. I had it as a nine. And it's on that scale where I don't think this is a, I can nap to this movie, although it's pretty damn close. Um, or one that I'm going to revisit often, but it's still one of those comfort films that I can put on just about any time and enjoy it and get a lot out of it. So I'll put it as a solid nine for rewatchability on me. I will go with your nine. I actually was thinking about a 9.5 because this is a film where I'm just... Well, go ahead. I mean, this I'll is the most 90, subjective I'll go 9.5. So that'll average it out to a 9.25, but go ahead. Yeah, and the reason why is is my my rewatchability is, is I just think about it. There are certain things. The comfort food, as I've called it throughout this process. <clears throat> you know, if I'm having a really absolutely shitty day and I come home and I just don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to think about anything. And I'm just flipping through the channels and almost emphatically hitting the freaking remote because I'm pissed off about something. And this film comes on, I will stop because I know I will feel better after watching this film, even if it's the last half hour. So that puts our final score at 46.1. Uh, and that is good for um, number 14 on our current list. Um, it's about overall. right. So I will tell everybody that has been listening faithfully up to this point that if you want to um, scrub off at this point, I'm perfectly acceptable 
Um, this is going to be the end of our main portion of the regular show. At this point, we're really only going to recap the list so far for um, the 25 episodes that we've done and then maybe take a few um, uh, remaining questions that we may have or open-ended well, questions that we have for the film. If you're but, going to uh, let people out, shouldn't you at least give the teaser for next week? Well, I didn't think we decided for sure what we were going to do for next week yet. I thought for sure we'd discuss that since this film is so tied to another particular film, we would do that film and then do a comparison and contrast at the end of that episode. Well, if you'd like to do that, that's fine. We had another one originally planned, but we can sidestep if that's what you We can like. push it back a week. All right, so then we'll go to High Noon this next week, um, which I would argue probably should have won um, Best Picture in, I believe it was 1952. Uh, I think it was a little later than that. I thought it was 53 or 54, but all right. Nope, it's 1952. Okay. I, I thought we had reviewed that for a, a pre-recorded episode. The movie that we pre-recorded last week. Oh. All right. There there are two seminal movies of that year. One that was not nominated and High Noon that was nominated. Uh, Singing in the Rain, which um, was not even nominated that year. But, um, yeah, I know. Oh, my God. I, I, I think it's Make them laugh. I, I think that's oh. the best musical of all time, just personally. But um, So do I. So... But yeah, if if uh, you're looking forward to next week, uh, I guess we'll do High Noon then and uh, um, get our uh, Gary Cooper on uh, for that. But uh, if you want to stop the podcast, um, this is where we're going to end the normal episode. So um, how much do you want me to recap as far as uh, the 25 that we have so far? Or do you just want me to give the top 10? Let's give it the top 10. If anything else, please check the blogs and other places and feel free and we'll be glad you can look at it. And if you want to comment, feel free to email or come or contact us in any of the other methods. So this being number 14, it falls squarely between Roman Holiday and Goodfellas on the list. Uh, but in descending order of what we currently have for the top 10, number 10. E.T. at 49.7. Number 9, Taxi Driver at 50.3. Number 8, Apocalypse Now at 50.4. Number 7, Some Like It Hot at 51.4. Number 6, Young Frankenstein barely eking out over Some Like It Hot at 51.45. 5, Silence of the Lambs at 52 points. 4, Groundhog Day. 52.3. Three, Pulp Fiction, with 52.85 points. Number two, The Best Years of Our Lives, at 53.3. And number one, by uh, a 0.15 margin currently, Back to the Future, at 53.45 points. <sighs> we have to redo that. Well, that that's fine. We can certainly do that. I think it's... Uh, available it's a on very multiple things. Good film, but it's not number one. 
Well, I don't think it's number one over some of the films that we have on this, but I can definitely make an argument over a few of the ones that we've done. I wouldn't um, go like it's at the bottom of the list or anything. Oh no, like no, no, that. no! I'm just saying. I think it should be squarely somewhere in the probably five to fifteen range. Yeah, but I, I, I think for where we've had the list and the movies that we've covered so far, I don't think I can comfortably put it at number one. Well, let's just put the, our number two film is probably if I had to rate a, uh, a list of, if I had to create a list of five films that nobody thinks about, but should everybody should see once in their life, that would be on that five film list, which is uh, the best years of our lives. It is such a good film and so well done. William Wilder did such a great job with this film. I just... The, every time I've watched it, I just... It's Billy Wilder and William Wyler. Yes. You you put the D in there. and Wyler, excuse me. If I did, I understand the I'm difference. just trying... I know, but I, even I kind of like, you know... It, yeah. it, it's one of those where they were contemporaries, and so you have a little bit of trouble. I'm, I'm going to give you a bit of a break, but I'm just... Yeah. For the sake of the audience and clarification. So, all right. Um, but, uh, so we'll cover high noon next week. Um, we're going to start trying to plan out and get some of our, uh, guests involved, uh, as we kind of go along, but, uh, that's what we have currently. Um, what did we have on for the list after that? So the next episode, if we're going to just delay it a week, then I can announce that one as well. And that's sleepless in Seattle. Very good film. The uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, and I think we already know what the indelible moment of that film is going to be. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The score of that film by itself is wonderful. <laughs> so let's just jump into the remaining questions so we can uh, round this one out. Um, the first one I had on my list was exactly what you did because we both looked at it, or you asked me that question during the course of the film. Um, at the end, you know, why didn't they run away? We've kind of already dealt with that one. So maybe we'll just kind of run over that one, but it's one of those where it's kind of open-ended and it just doesn't make sense narratively. Um, but yes. you can understand why they made that choice. Uh, the other one was one I already hinted at. Um, when you could have either Dean Martin or Ricky Nelson, why would she go for John Wayne? But I guess we've decided that that one delves into areas where I should not tread. So, uh, I have two other ones that I put down. Okay. Um, now, it's stated, and this is part of the narrative plot, I think it's a potential plot hole, but um, they talk about um, Dude and John, or Chance being the only two witnesses to the murder. Well, let's just say we're the only two witnesses that will talk. Except John Wayne's unconscious during the murder. <laughs> yeah I, I mean that's never been answered like they generally know that obviously somebody was shot but the only one unless you're getting another reported story dude's doubled over because he's just gotten the shit kicked out of him and chances knocked out on the floor after being hit upside the head really credible or witnesses to a murder and that's the storyline that you're gonna go with um i i just 
to me, that's a huge plot hole when it's the central part of everything that goes on in this movie. I agree. And finally, and you kind of looked this one up while we were going through it, but it's always um, been a question I had because it never comes up uh, during the course of the movie that you can either figure it out or they have that throw-in line that has the um, title of the movie. But where did we get Rio Bravo? Well, I looked it up. This, the movie was based on an article or a short story, and the name of the town was Rio Bravo because it sat on the Rio Bravo, which was a tributary of the Rio Grande. All right. So at least we have that. I, normally, I do these as remaining questions, uh, thinking that they will have no answer, but at least we have that um, generally. <laughs> But that's going to do it for us this week, and uh, please stay tuned for the back half of the show, um, or the back half of this season, excuse me. Uh, I think we have some very interesting films coming up, and some fan favorites, uh, other ones that will be kind of nostalgic-centric. So uh, I wish we could chat longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, thanks, everybody, and have a great rest of your week.